Well, Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, meaning if you are hoping for something and you don't actually ever see that coming to fruition, it has an effect on your heart. You become depressed, you become maybe in despair, maybe you have soul sorrow, you feel deflated, your hope then becomes in short supply if what you're hoping for doesn't ever seem to come to fruition. But think of the opposite of that with me. When you finally do see, realize, obtain what your heart has been hoping for, how awesome is that? How fulfilling is that? Our hearts are then full of joy. And so the question is, how does the Christian hope come to fruition? How do we see what we are hoping for in our faith? And so I hope it won't be a surprise to you to realize that our hope is based on a person. Our hope is based on Jesus Christ. Our hope is based on actually Him as a person coming to earth, doing what He did, ascending back to the Father, and then one day we'll return again physically, bodily, and our hope will be realized once again. This Jesus Christ, born to a woman, yet fully God in the flesh, and our hope is based squarely on the fact that Jesus exists and what the Bible claims about Him is true. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And so how does this realized hope in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, affect our lives in the church and beyond? I'm glad you asked that. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this week. We are bouncing around a little bit for our series in Advent, Portraits of the Christ. We will get back to Romans in January. And that is, if you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you. Um, but we usually spend time, as Paul said, going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But still, for Advent, we are going to use a main chapter, and we're going to look at that, and we're going to dig through that. And this week, it's Philippians 2. Last week, we kicked off the Advent series, and we looked at Christ in His humanity being our representative, and in His deity being our salvation. We saw Christ's authority empowering our mission and our commission, that Christ Himself is the object and reward of our faith, and that ultimately, we said that Christ's coming initiates the gospel. Christ's coming initiates the gospel. It starts this, this unstoppable chain of events that ends with our salvation and for God's glory. And this week, again, we dig into Philippians 2 to look at a different portrait of Christ. And just some background on Philippians, right, as we parachute into a new book. Philippians is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a city in New Testament Greece named after Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great and a very, very important city in the Roman Empire. The church of Philippi was the first church founded in Europe, according to Acts 16, where we see that happening. Paul's writing to them to encourage them, while Paul is cooling his heels in the big house in prison. Chapter 1, he thanks God for them as he remembers them. He prays for them. He encourages them that even though he's in prison, the gospel's not bound. The gospel continues to go out, that even his imprisonment is part of that. He encourages them that he will not be ashamed by life or by death. For him to live is Christ and to die is gain. He challenges them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if they have to suffer for their faith like he is. The church of Philippi loves Paul. He's their founding pastor. They've just sent him a substantial gift and now he writes to thank them, to encourage them, and to challenge them. How does he encourage them? Well, by focusing their, intention, their attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
He's going to paint a portrait of him that we can use for our encouragement this Advent season. Let's look again at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so... Verse 1, we have a therefore or a so, as ESV translates it. He gives them a command, make my joy complete, which is a fancy biblical way of saying, do this and I'll be happy. And parents, you can use this, okay? Maybe if you actually cleaned up after yourselves, kids or husbands, it would make my joy complete. You can use that from the Bible. It's free. But he grounds this command to make his joy complete in some reasoning, a common reasoning that they all should share, being that they are the Christ church, the church of Jesus Christ. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection, any comfort, any sympathy, he's like, guys, this should be apparent. You're the church of Jesus. If there's anything like that here, which there is, do this. Make my joy complete by what he's going to tell them. He says, all that, these things, or all these things rather exist or should exist in the church. They all share these things through their union with Christ. The church should be a place of encouragement, comforting love, fellowship in the Holy Spirit, affection and sympathy, because they're all one in Jesus Christ. They have these things in abundance in the church. And so he's like, guys, on the basis of this, please, this is the foundation And he gives them two commands. He says, be united and be humble. A lot of words in two big buckets. Be united and be humble. First, be united, he says in verse 2. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. Be of one mind. This doesn't mean to think like some sort of cultic robot, like you all have to repeat the same mantra and do the same things. But you have to have the same understanding about things, especially the things of the faith focused on the same goal. CSB translates verse 2 like this, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See the unity there that comes through the faith? So first, this is the unity that is supposed to characterize Christ's church. Second, he tells them to be humble. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility can be much misunderstood. It could be misunderstood as thinking less of yourself. In other words, I'm no good compared to other people. Social media is a wonderful social contagion for making us all feel like utter garbage when we look at how perfect everyone else's lives are. That's not biblical humility. This passage defines biblical humility. It says, don't just worry about yourself, but worry about the needs of others. Consider their needs before you consider your own needs. That, he says, is biblical humility. Or as one author put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So let's put the pieces together. Paul tells the church what would make them happy, 
or him happy rather, complete his joy, be humble and be united. But how? Look at where he started in verse 1. They can be humble and united because why? They're all in Jesus Christ. They all believe the same things in doctrine and in principle. And that, he says, should bring him joy. That would make his joy complete. If they all thought and acted the same way in unity about the things of the faith which they have, and also in humility, thinking about each other. So here's the first point. Christ's church should see humble joy through doctrinal unity. Christ's church should see humble joy through doctrinal unity. Contrary to what some may say about doctrine, doctrine does not divide. Doctrine unites. It is the very basis for them being of the same mind. They're thinking of the doctrine together, being of full accord and of one mind. Doctrine is the summary of what the church should think from the Word of God. Highlands has a doctrinal statement that we all agree upon when we become members. Some of you may say, oh, silly, bald Pastor Mike, there is no such thing as unity in doctrine. Everybody knows that. Just look at YouTube. Look at the thousands of wackerdoos on YouTube. Look at the millions of denominations. Everybody believes something different about doctrine, Pastor Mike. I have to admit that, yeah, that is to our shame. That is to our utter shame. But the doctrine is preserved for us in the inspired Word of God that we all hold in our hands. This is doctrine. Whether some people can't understand it or not, that's human sin, right? But this is doctrine. And it's always been that way. Jude 3 proclaims this, the doctrine, as the faith delivered once for all the saints. The passage that I read every communion Sunday in 1 Corinthians 11 calls for unity in the doctrine that Paul says, I received from the Lord, and then he delivered it to the church. A few chapters later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have a foundational way of thinking of doctrine, especially what is the most important. 1 Corinthians 15 says, oh, that's Romans 15. 1 Corinthians, nothing like looking down and looking and going, that doesn't make any sense at all. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Most important thing in the Bible. The Bible says this is it. What I also received Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what, we, that's what we mean by the centrality of doctrine. That's what Paul says is the most important thing. That's what should bring unity, and that should bring a humble joy in the church as we all think the same way about the gospel, about the most important thing. So the first step to unity and doctrine is that, that we actually have to believe what the Bible proclaims as of first importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, of course, we have the scriptures. We have this. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us all to help us understand and interpret the scriptures. But we also have the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms of the early church. Just as last week, we actually looked at a passage in 1 Timothy, that was actually an early creed in the church telling us all about Jesus Christ. 
We non-denoms are a little sketchy about the creeds and catechisms, but I keep trying to embrace them. (laughs) We would do well to get to know the Westminster Divines, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechisms, the writings of the early church fathers. Why? Because in them we find a unity of doctrine. There's once, Jude said, there's one faith that was delivered for all the saints. We see that throughout all of church history. On our quest to interpret the Bible, however, we have to remember what's commonly called doctrinal triage. Not every doctrine is a first-order doctrine. There are first-order doctrines like the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, right? the Trinity, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, salvation by faith alone, gender and sexuality as it regards to creation, But then there are second-level issues like views on creation. Is it short or long? Did he make the llamas first or the unicorns? Who knows? Views on end times or even modes of baptism. And then there's third-level issues like worship styles and dress in the church and the color of carpet. All of those things can't be elevated to first-order issues. When you do, then you have a big problem. So we have to keep the first-order issues first-order. And then we have to be united in what the Bible says clearly is the first order issue, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say this will bring? Joy. He said his joy will will come through the unity of the faith, thinking the same way about things through Jesus. And Highlands is overwhelmingly a joyful place of unity and humility. I'm sure we have our issues here and there. But there are few and far between. And hopefully, that is because we focus on this, right? It's not just a name. It's Highlands Bible Church because this is the authority in the church. And so as we focus on this, hopefully we see that humble unity and that humble joy that comes through this being the authority. And we sang, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. When we camp on that and what Jesus has done, the depth of what Jesus has come for us, it can only bring humble joy and that unity of the faith that only Jesus can bring to his church. And so as we look vertically at what God did for us, right? We look up and we see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That should then be bent out horizontally to each other and the way that we relate to each other. Doing the one another's of the church, honoring one another, loving one another, bearing each other's burdens and all the rest. And our selfish souls, sometimes we can think, okay, fine, but when do I get to worry about myself? And how, how far do I have to go in this humility bit? And it's almost like Paul is anticipating that question because that's directly what he refutes. Look at verse 5, back in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Paul tells them, think this way about things. After you think about what, you, what you've received from Christ, right? think about each other 
like Jesus would, because you all have the mind of Christ, because you're all Christians, you all have the spirit of Christ. Then he goes on to give us another portrait of Christ. And he essentially says, how far should you go with this humility thing? How far did Jesus go with this humility thing? Think about Christ. He said, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't have that form of God something to be held onto with tight hands. He didn't just stay God in heavens. He took on human flesh. This, once again, we see the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. We can't get away from that, church. First, Paul says point blank that Jesus is God. Philippians is one of the best places to go in Philippians 2 for a clear proclamation. Jesus was God. The Bible never said Jesus was God. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. Let's start there, okay? John 1 also proclaims the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sorry, Jehovah Witnesses, in the Greek, there's no ah there. He was not a God. He was God. A few other times in Titus and 2 Peter, for example, Jesus is referred to as our God and our Savior. But maybe most clearly of all, when we talk about Jesus being God, is the way Jesus thought about himself. Jesus, while on earth, was fully aware of his godness. He was fully aware of his identity as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He referred to himself constantly as the Son of Man, a direct title from Daniel 7 of the Messiah. He demonstrated his power over creation. He commanded the wind and the waves. That's God's stuff. He did miracles that defy science. Why? Because he's God. He demonstrated power over evil spirits. He spoke and taught with authority, not like the scribes. He was put to death. Why? Because he claimed to be God, and he was fully aware of it. So God, without a doubt, Jesus is God. And we see that in the scripture, but we also see that Jesus was also human. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and was found also in the form of a man, human form. Jesus, truly God, truly human. I had a lot of questions about that last week, and how does that work? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> this is what scripture says. It only works for one person, and that's him. It doesn't work for anybody else, but that's how Jesus is truly human, truly, truly God. In his humanity, we said last week that he sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like to be human, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired, to be rejected by his own, to be falsely accused, to be sinned against. He knows what that feels like. But we also said last week that Jesus as a human being represents us in his humanity. He can be the human sacrifice for sin. You need a human to be the human sacrifice for sin. That's how that works. Do not misunderstand this to be, when we think of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ being obedient to the point of death, we sometimes could think that, oh, well, then God the Father, mean God the Father, just sent Jesus to the cross, which is what the atheistics and the, the atheistic worldview, the agnostic worldview, the progressive Christian worldview is going to try to jam down your throat, that this is some sort of divine child abuse, that, that God the Father just woke up one morning and said, I got to fix this mess Jesus, I need you to go down, and I need you to go to the cross. I don't really want to do that. Well, sorry, I'm the Father. No, that's not what happened at all. Yes, he was obedient to his heavenly Father because he's perfect, but Jesus also did it out of his own free will. The Gospel of John, 
says this, no one, this is Jesus speaking, no one takes my life from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Don't you dare think for a minute that Jesus was forced into the cross because it says obedience to the point of death. He went willingly out of obedience to the Father. And Ephesians 2 tells us because of the great love with which he had for us, even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, he made us alive together with him. Jesus did it because he loves us and because he was obedient and it was his choice. So we put all that together. Jesus, fully and truly God, in obedience and of his own free will, leaves the glories of heaven to come down to this smelly, sin-soaked earth to be born in a barn to a human being, to be rejected, to be falsely accused, to be put on a criminal's cross, all at the plan of God so that his people could be redeemed. Can there be any greater servant in the history of the world? And the answer, of course, is no. Second point, Christ's sacrifice proves that he is the ultimate servant. Christ's sacrifice proves that he is the ultimate servant. And to appreciate that, we've got to look at all the portraits of Christ that Paul has been laying out for us here. Jesus is God, Jesus as man, and his sacrifice for sin. We need all of those pieces in the mix for it to land with the weight that it needs to in our hearts. The full weight of the servanthood of Jesus can only be appreciated against the backdrop of his deity. If Jesus is just a nice guy, our example, who wanted to die for other people, that's not a real big deal. That's, that's honorable. But a Savior who's not God can't save anyone. He has to be God. And look at what he gave up, the glories of heaven to come to earth took on human form, made himself an obedient servant to the point of death, even death on a Roman criminal cross. The most agonizing, humiliating way to die. And when we look at it that way, Christ's sacrifice, what he gave up to bring us, to reconcile us to God the Father, shows us he's the ultimate servant. There can't possibly be a bigger servant than Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's never been anyone as big as Jesus who is God and man. That's why. So you might suspect it's a pretty short walk to application here. If we are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ, would you call yourself a servant? Is there any task that is beneath you? Is there anyone not worth serving? This portrait of Christ blows that out of the water. Would you say that you regularly look to sacrifice your own needs for the needs of others? Would you say that you consider others' needs as more important than yourselves? Again, balancing what we said. It doesn't mean you're making yourself as a worm. It means that I'm looking out for others first before myself, like Christ did. But some of us, being your pastor, I am well aware it seems like you were in a season of constant servanthood. It seems like some of us here, mom's in survival mode with littles tugging, tugging at you all day and the winter sickness cycle coming in, all the diapers, all the messes, all the constant noise. Servants. 
Dads working long hours, running businesses, keeping the home maintained, discipling the kids through family devotions, serving in the church, loving and leading their wives, servants. Others caring for elderly parents, sometimes 24 hours a day to the point of mental and physical exhaustion, servants. Parents caring for others who are sick or even children going through cancer, servants. Maybe you're in a living situation that you don't want, that you didn't design, that you just have other people in your house and it's blowing everything up. But you did it in the name of Christ and you did it to be hospitable servants. If you're in a season of servanthood right now, this Advent, be encouraged. God sees this and it's Christ-like and it pleases Him and you are acting like Christ. Matthew describes how servanthood fits right into this paradigm of the upside-down kingdom of God. The kingdom of, of our world will tell us what? Exalt yourself. Think of yourself first. The kingdom of God says, no, it's not about thinking of yourself first. It's about thinking of others first. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 20, in verse 25. He says, in verse 25, he says, but Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the heart behind service. That's the heart behind Philippians 2. That's the heart behind Christ, his sacrifice, proving that he was the ultimate servant. Maybe you're not in a season of servanthood right now. I could almost guarantee there's probably one coming. At some time in our lives, right, we will have to be forced to put our needs, our wants, our dreams, our whatever in the back seat. Sorry, this isn't a prosperity gospel church. You're not going to hear about you know, succeeding in your dreams in 2024, this prophetic word. Right? The idea is that Jesus calls us to put all of that in the back seat because we consider others more important than ourselves. Why? Because he did. We sacrifice for the good of others. And so if you're not in that season of servanthood right now, take a little piece of pastoral advice. Prepare yourself to be in the season of servanthood. Because that's one of the hardest things is suddenly it hits us and we're like, I don't want this. I didn't do that. It's coming. Prepare ourselves to serve. And if you're not in that season right now, rejoice, but prepare yourself to serve. There is a danger here though, folks. There's a danger. Anytime a preacher camps on the servanthood of Jesus Christ, right? We could leave there. I could close the Bible and I could say, go ye, be servants upon the world. And then we sing a song and go home. But this passage in Philippians 2 won't let us do that. Because Christ is not only a servant. Christ is a king. Look at Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, in light of everything he just said, even the servant stuff, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, because of who Jesus is as God and man and his sacrifice on the cross, he isn't just a lowly servant He isn't just a guy that was weak and got himself killed. He is an exalted king. 
Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Think about that. Every single person one day will kneel at the throne of Jesus Christ and they will say he is Lord. He is ruler. He is king. Some of us will be kneeling in worship and devotion and adoration. Those who have spent their whole lives rejecting Jesus Christ and making themselves king over their own little kingdoms that don't exist will do so in complete obedience to the obvious fact that he really is king and he really is in control. And they will do it then out of obedience. However, it will be too late for their souls. Jesus isn't merely a lowly servant. He's the exalted king. How do we know this? Because he has the authority to command every single human being on the earth to one day bow at his feet and call him Lord and King. We sang, all hail the power. And I'm sure my friend Pat put that in there on purpose. All hail the power of Jesus' name. The angels fall before him in worship and honor. Verse 4 of that hymn tells us that we at his feet will fall. We join the everlasting crowd and crown him Lord of all. Why? Because his name is Jesus. The risen lamb for sinners slain. And all creation will sing the power of what? The praise of Jesus' name. It's the name of Jesus because of who he is and what he did. Because he's been exalted by the Father because he did the work perfectly. Because he was the perfect God. He was the perfect man. And he did the work of the cross perfectly. That's why he's exalted. This is hard for us. We don't have kings anymore. We don't, we don't have our, our presidents. We don't call them kings. Easy now. It's hard for us to imagine honor. It is hard to imagine any honor in our political system at the moment whatsoever. But think about, I'm going to get in trouble, but think about it. A king, you bow before a king. That king has the power of over your life. At the snap of a finger, your head could be separated from your body and nobody would care. He has the power of life and death. That king is in charge of your kingdom. That king is the one who provides you protection from enemies. That king is the the one that provides you food. That king is the one who provides you everything, the city that you live in. We don't have that anymore so much, right? But think about that. Give us a little bit of a a perspective of what it means to be king. And when you're in, in front of that king, guess what? You bow. You kneel. You submit to him. How much greater church would it be for King Jesus? One day we will. Church, Jesus is that king. Jesus is our king. He's king because he's given us the title. He was given the title, rather, of king by God the Father based on the work that he did as God and man and the sacrifice. He's given us everything. And we live in his kingdom. We breathe his air. Our hearts beat at his command. We go to sleep and we wake up. How about that? We go to sleep and we wake up every day under the sun and under the moon that he commands, that he has given us. He is our king. And so third point is this. Christ's exaltation is his authority. 
Christ's exaltation is his authority. And failure to acknowledge Jesus as the authority is the fundamental sin that fractured creation into this place to begin with. We rejected in the garden. We rejected God's rule over us. We rejected his authority over us. They bought the original lie that said, hey, you don't need a king. Psst, you can be king. You can be king. You don't need his rules. You make the rules. You can tell what's wrong or right. And Adam and Eve went, yeah, that sounds like a, a great idea. I think I will do that. And in so doing what? Rejected the king of the universe. Shattered our relationship with the king. Not only that, try doing that with an actual king, like the ones we were talking about before. That's not going to go well for you. Same concept times a billion, right? R.C. Sproul says that's cosmic treason. We fractured that relationship. We threw his authority in his face. But here's the thing. We cannot just rush back into his throne room, right? Once you have done that to the king, you can't just rush back into the throne room and say, I figured it out. I'm sorry. I'll do all of these things for you. Please forgive me. That's not going to work. You've already broken that relationship. I'm sorry, King Jesus. I'll make it up to you. I'll do these good deeds as penance. It doesn't work because we've already broken the law. Someone has to fix it for us. And it was God who fixed it for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Through him as God, man, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, now being the authority as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And turning to Christ in faith means turning from the sin of our self-proclamation of king in our own little kingdoms and admitting that he is the true and proper king and we serve him and only him. The life of a Christian is a daily fight to keep ourselves off the throne, isn't it? It's the reality of it. And submit to the loving rule of our King Jesus because one day this king will return. Listen to how Revelation talks about this king returning. Revelation 19 in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we see that? So let's not make Jesus into a poor little weak servant. He teaches us to be a servant, but he is also a king, and we need to submit to him. And this king will look into the hearts of every single human being who ever lived and see who the real king is, the king of all kings. And we will all bow before King Jesus, again, some in devotion, others in sheer realization of their mistake, we will bow before Jesus. We'll be, able to, we'll be able to see Him and touch Him. The Christian faith is not a mystical faith, right? It's again about the person of Jesus. And one day when He returns, He will return as a person, not a phantom. We don't worship a spiritual force. 
We don't worship rocks or trees or the sun. We worship a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that's the crux of this passage, church. We imitate Jesus in the church with humility and unity. Jesus is a servant, but Jesus is also king. Christ the servant, that servant king is a person. The good news of the gospel this Advent, as we anticipate the coming of Christ, is we actually anticipate Christ in his personhood, not just Christ in a force. So here's the big idea. Christ's coming personifies the gospel. Last week we said Christ's coming initiates the gospel. This week we look at a portrait of Christ that tells us Christ's coming personifies the gospel. In other words, it puts flesh on it. In other words, we see it. In other words, he acts it out. What is the basis of our doctrine in the church? Jesus. We have unity in doctrine because the Bible proclaims one message about him, who he is. And we in the church, as Paul told us, are supposed to think the same way about it. What we believe about God vertically then spills over horizontally into our relationships with others. And therefore, we should see this humble joy in our, in our church through doctrinal unity, all based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Philippians 2, the one who left the glories of heaven, took the form of a human servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see through that sacrifice that he proves that he is the ultimate servant. And we see that Christ's kingdom, the way up is the way down. The way to exaltation is through humility. The greatest are the servants, but make no mistake, Christ is no mere servant. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not weak. One day he will return and every, na- every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus really is Lord to the glory of the Father. That exaltation is his authority to command that. Church, we don't have a mysterious hope this Advent. We have an actual hope. We have a tangible hope, one that is based on an actual person, Jesus Christ. Jesus was and is an actual person in addition to being God. Advent is all about the anticipation of a coming, of coming of this actual person, actually born. And so Jesus' is coming, Christ's coming personifies that hope, puts on actual human skin, puts it on as a tangible reality. And from that reality, church, we should look to see all of the things that Philippians 2 tells us. Doctrinal unity is a thing. There's joy from thinking the same way about things, about the things that are of first importance. There's joy in serving. There's joy in submitting to Jesus as our King of kings and Lord of lords. And we celebrate Advent, the anticipation of Christ's coming, because Christ's coming personifies that gospel hope. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your goodness that you have given us this word, that we have it preserved, that we have, Lord, um, the freedom to read it in this country, and we pray for continued freedom to do that. But Lord, we pray for us this Advent season, that as we think about the coming of Christ, the anticipation of the coming of Christ, our Redeemer, that we would realize that that is an actual hope that we can realize. It is not a hope that is never coming, but a hope that has come and a hope that will come again. So our hearts are not sick with deferred hope. Our hearts are full of a biblical hope in the gospel that is personified by Christ, our Lord, the King of kings. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.